Hey, good morning. If you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, let me invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58, uh, middle of your Bible um, in the Old Testament. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you, you can grab one of those uh, maybe in the seat pocket in front of you. Uh, Don't be ashamed to look at the table of contents to find uh, Isaiah. And of course, you can follow along using uh, the YouVersion Bible app uh, and and the events feature. Um, as you're making your way there, uh, let me just uh, point out a couple of things that we've got coming up over this next week. First off, next Sunday is going to be Family Worship Sunday. And so what we're going to be doing is, uh, on that particular Sunday, we're only going to have children's programming for ages 0 through 4, which means that our 5-year-olds and up will be here worshiping with us next Sunday. Now, in saying that... Uh, before some of you panic and start making alternate plans for next week, uh, let me just say, like, next week is going to be unique. For one, I'm not going to be preaching a 40-minute sermon next week. So that, that, <laughs> I got two amens off of that. So, <clears throat> However, next Sunday is going to be a little bit more interactive, um, especially uh, to engage everyone, especially for our kids. And so this is something that we really want to be more intentional about as we move through this year. I think that we've called this particular Sunday All In Sundays, but this is an opportunity for us as a church family to worship together and to really model worship uh, for our kids. And so we'll be doing this a handful of times uh, throughout the year, so just want to give you a heads up on that. Speaking of next Sunday, uh, we're actually beginning a new teaching series next week called Lost and Found. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be walking through three parables uh, of Jesus in Luke chapter 15. And so that's going to be just fun, and I'm really looking forward to that. And so I want to give you a heads up on where we're going there. As Sue mentioned earlier uh, during announcements, of course, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. So again, we want to encourage you to to be here with us. And uh, again, depending on your background, and uh, Sue explained, you know, Lent essentially comes from the, uh, it comes from a medieval Latin word that I cannot pronounce but it's where we get the word 40 from, Lenten or Lent. And, of course, this, is, this inaugurates one of the, the traditional seasons, uh, one of the five traditional seasons of the year, um, and leading up to Holy Week when we take time to uh, remember the suffering, death, uh, and resurrection of Jesus. Um, as one of the five traditional seasons that's been observed by the early church, it was probably developed sometime around 200 A.D. It became more of a consistent practice around 350 A.D. Now, in saying all of that, um, even if you didn't know that, I'd say that many of us here are uh, at least familiar with the practice of giving up something for Lent, right? Like, how many times have you heard somebody say, like, I'm giving up bacon for Lent, I don't know why anybody would do that. No. I'm giving up chocolate. I'm giving up caffeine. I'm giving up social media. That's not a bad one um, if you're looking for suggestions. Now, uh, there is no obligation uh, among Christians, especially in church history, to observe Lent. Uh, But again, it's traditionally been treated as a time of self-denial, self-examination, a season of, of preparation and purification where the life of the Christian is refocused or more exclusively focused on Jesus. However, as is the case with a lot of spiritual observances in church history, the intended purpose of things like Lent have a way of getting lost, even among Christians. See, it's easy to lose sight sometimes of why we do what we do. 
where, where at times our spiritual activity can be uh, less about focusing on God and more about focusing on ourselves. Or to put it another way, it's easy to find ourselves subtly doing things in order to get something from God instead of remembering the fact that we get God. Where our religious acts become nothing more than doing things to serve ourselves and our own interests than serving God and others. And that's part of where I want us to focus this morning. We're going to be moving toward a time of communion uh, at the end of the service. But I want us to talk about what it means for us to uh, focus our attention and service on God and God's interest as opposed to our own. So today what we're doing is we're concluding uh, our Resolved series. Uh, We've started this at the beginning of the year and we're going to be looking at the third way that we believe that God has specifically designed this church called New Cove to carry out its gospel mission. And our gospel mission is to make disciples of Jesus. That's something that every Jesus-centered, Bible-believing church has been commissioned to do. To make disciples and to develop each other into our God-given potential. The, the word that we sometimes attach to that is discipleship. Right? To make disciples and to develop one another into our full God-given potential, all the while sharing the love of Jesus proclaimed through his gospel to one another, to our neighbors, and to the nations. And so over the last couple of weeks, we have covered the first two of these three specific ways that we go about accomplishing our mission, beginning with genuine faith. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, genuine faith is essentially saving faith. It's confident faith. It's a faith that counts. Whereas Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says we have been justified by faith. Justified meaning that we have been made right and given right standing before God. In other words, faith isn't about what we do uh, to get to God. It's believing what God has done to get to us. That's genuine faith. Or as Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God so that no one may boast. Genuine faith. And so our priority is to lead one another to this genuine faith and to grow in it. Last week, we focused on a second way that we go about accomplishing our mission, which is through authentic relationships. And Pastor Troy did an amazing job illustrating and explaining what we mean by authentic relationships. I have spent this week trying to think of a way that I could poke back at Pastor Troy. I even thought about maybe putting his picture up on the screen and drawing on it, you know, since he made fun of my drawings last week. But, you know, it did cross my mind at the end of the service last week to uh, just ask everyone, hey, if you're Troy's best friend, would you stand up? And I just wanted to see how many people would stand up, you know. Uh, Troy embodies so much of, I think, what we mean by authentic relationships. And by authentic relationships, again, we're talking about intentional relationships where we do intentional things, like meeting together frequently, where we deepen our trust, where we grow in our love for one another, while we live out our genuine faith together. And maybe one way to think about authentic relationships is this, is that while genuine faith is personal, while your faith is personal, it is anything but private. Your faith was not meant to be private. It's personal, yes, but it was never meant to be private. It was meant to be lived out in the context of authentic relationships. And so where we're going today, we're going to look at this third priority that we call meaningful impact. See, see, you and I were created to make a meaningful impact on one another's lives and the world around us as we live out our genuine faith in the context of authentic relationships. Now, as Troy pointed out, Last week, I miserably tried to illustrate this uh, two weeks ago. 
uh, in, in taking this idea of genuine faith and authentic relationships and meaningful impact and to talk about the fact that you really can't grow in one of these areas without the other. And this isn't just something that we're about as a church. We believe this is so important for anybody, whether or not you call this your church home uh, or not. So we believe that in order to make disciples and develop one another into our full God-given potential, we need to be growing in genuine faith as we are connected to authentic relationships while making a meaningful impact. So what do we mean by meaningful impact? I'm so glad you asked. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 58, uh, beginning at verse 1. And I think this passage... I've spent time with this particular passage over the last few years. I think this answers the question in a pretty clear and profound way for us. Isaiah chapter 58, beginning in verse 1. And this is God speaking to his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah being the longest uh, book of the, of the prophets in the, in the Old Testament. God says to Isaiah, shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and they seem eager for God to come near them. That's your verse of the day. That's a nice pick-me-up, isn't it? Now, listen to how... Uh, another translation. This is the message paraphrase, how it puts these same verses. Listen to this. Shout. A full-throated shout. Full-throated shout is kind of like, you know, the guy that gets the Go Big Red chant started, right? You know, give a full-throated shout. Hold nothing back. A trumpet blast shout. A piercing shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family, Jacob, with their sins. Listen to this part. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right-living people, law-abiding, God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And love having me on their side. Mm. There's a lot of directions that we could go with that. Too bad that that doesn't have anything to say to us today, right? Now, Let's unpack what's, what's going on here. As, as, as is the case with many of God's prophets, and we saw this earlier in the series with the prophet Haggai, God sends his prophets not to tell the people what they want to hear, but what they, what? Need to hear. In other words, not only was the work of the prophet unsettling, the words of the prophet were unsettling. And so the picture here is that God is bringing a case before his people, a people who by all appearances seem to be doing all the right things, giving the impression, especially to people who were looking in from the outside, that they were genuinely seeking God. They were all about God. However, look at the people's response in verse 3. And this is quite telling. Why have we fasted and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? In other words, instead of seeking God's way, which they say they're eager to do, they're really seeking their own ways, using God to get their way. Where, where they're coming before God was clearly out of an effort to get something from God. And so the people arrogantly demand why their religious performance wasn't working and why God wasn't noticing and why God wasn't acting. 
And that's exactly what it was. It was performance, right? In fact, one of the, one of the words in the Greek, uh, you know, the Old Testament is, is written in Hebrew, uh, the New Testament in Greek. Uh, a, the Greek word that is oftentimes associated with performance is the word hypocrite. Hypocrite. So the people were hypocritical, right? In other words, the people lacked genuineness in their expression of faith, and, and they're, they're trying to manipulate God by afflicting themselves, or more specifically, by denying themselves by fasting. Now, fasting, just in case you're not aware, I think most of us are just because of medical uh, procedures, that many of which are unpleasant, uh, fasting in its purest form was mostly a voluntary spiritual act of abstaining, most often from food, for the purpose of devoting oneself to greater dependence on God. What's interesting is when you study the scriptures, only one time in scripture does God command the people to fast, and that's on the Day of Atonement. Every other fast is essentially voluntary, but it's, it's, but it's done in, in a sense to devote oneself to greater dependence on God. It was, dependent, it was intended to teach the people that man shall not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2, and, and how Jesus counters the enemy in the wilderness. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. However, the people were perverting this thing called fasting as a way to get something from God. And when God didn't deliver how they wanted or how they expected, the people get frustrated and they're puzzled as to why. Look at this next part of verse 3. This is God responding. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Now now picture this. The people are so irritable in their self-denial and fasting. They have made each other so miserable that they end up getting into arguments and fist fights. They're punching each other because that's what God wants, right? There's actually a technical word for this, by the way. In the English language, it's called hangry. <laughs> hangry, right? Hunger, angry. And it's actually a word, if you look at it, like, it's, a, it's a dictionary word, hangry, right? Anybody been hangry lately? Anybody getting a little hangry right now? You don't have to raise your hands uh, on that. Listen, a couple of years ago, I tried to go on a juice fast, uh, which miraculously lasted uh, for all of about two days, at which point I just became so hangry that I needed something to chew on. And as Molly talked about, Molly and I talked about it, it just wasn't worth it for me to be that hangry. And so uh, I ended up ditching the whole thing. But a couple of years later, uh, we did this thing called Whole30. Anybody done this before? So the Whole30 diet is essentially you, you cut out carbs, uh, including breads, sugars, dairy, pretty much anything that tastes good. And you do this for 30 consecutive days, and, and a week or two in, I was craving sweets, something bad. I don't think I realized how much I, I missed sweets until, until I started doing this. And so I told Molly one day, I said, I just want some cheesecake. And I think Molly was thinking that I wanted a slice of cheesecake. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I want a cheesecake. Like, I just want to bury my face in a cheesecake right now. Uh, cheesecake breaks essentially every rule of, of, of Whole30, right? But uh, I eventually had my cheesecake. But I'm going to tell you, I spent some days and weeks hangry, right? And this is practically the picture that Isaiah is painting for us here. In fact, many of the same issues that are at work in this people 2,700 years ago 
are still just as prevalent today. Where sometimes we're just as tempted to use religious behavior, spiritual activity and practices to manipulate God to get what we want for our own selfish gain. And in the process, we can make ourselves downright miserable thinking that somehow that's what God must want from us in order to get what we want from God, right? You ever, you ever met a grumpy church person? Might give you a little bit of a picture of what's going on there. Like, we just make each other miserable sometimes. Now, now let, me, let me bring this whole idea of Lent back into view for just a moment. This is, this is what we're coming up on this week. And let me be clear. Listen, I'm not knocking that thing that maybe you were considering until I started to make you feel guilty about it a little while ago. There, there are plenty of benefits uh, to fasting that aren't necessarily spiritual reasons. Um, and that's okay. But, listen, if you are a follower of Jesus where essentially everything you do is essentially spiritual, then I would ask you, why are you really giving that thing up? Why are you giving it up? Why? Is, is, it, is it for God? Is it to draw near to God? Is it to get something from God? Or maybe instead of fasting, think about our, our religious activities, like church attendance and serving and giving like maybe if I go to church a little bit more, if I serve a little bit more, if I give a little bit more, if I, if I do all the right things, then somehow I can get God on my side and get what I want or what I feel like I need from him. And can I, can I just tell you that the gospel is the good news that God is already on your side. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing you ever could do to get God on your side. God is on your side. God wants to bless us simply because he delights in us. Psalm 18, he rescues me because he delights in me. And God wants us to seek our ultimate delight in him, which means that God cannot and will not bless things in our lives that stand in the way of his good intent for us. It won't happen. And so although the people were expecting their fasting somehow to change God, The irony here is that their fasting certainly wasn't changing them, at least not for the better. It was making them miserable, and they're punching each other. And that's so far from God's good intent for his people in our worship and in our devotion to him. Look with me at verse 5. Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Again, is, is fasting about you or is it about God? And that's essentially what God is asking here. See, appearances can be deceiving sometimes, right? In fact, Jesus calls this out with the religious elite of his day. People whose appearances of being righteous uh, kind of put them up and pedestaled them, you know, in comparison to other people, right? They, they looked righteous, the appearance of being righteous, but their hearts were far from God. That their religious performances, and Jesus calls them hypocrites, brood of vipers, that's not how you necessarily make friends with people, right? But he calls this out uh, because not only were they disingenuous and insincere, but they were only, that their hearts were only becoming hardened to God in the process. And guys, that's what we have to be so careful of. Like religious activity can make our hearts hard, even though that's not what we intend. We, we seek to draw near to God. But when we go through routine, what ends up happening is our hearts lose sensitivity 
to why we do what we do. Maybe here, here's another way to think about it, because I don't know, like, all of that's a little bit harsh, right? Like, whoa, man, coming out a little hot this morning, but have you ever found yourself, like, doing everything that you knew to do just to draw near to God, attempting to reach God, when it seemed like God was silent, distant, or had maybe forgotten about you? You're just trying to get God's attention. And maybe, maybe it has nothing to do with religious performance more than just desperation to get God to move. Maybe you found yourself doing all the right things, doing all that you knew to do that God would want you to do in an effort to reach God, just to get God to reach back. And that's a real place for some of us, isn't it? That's a real place. Like, God, what do you want from me? Like, what do you want me to do? And I think regardless of our motivations, isn't that the question? Like, God, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Where sometimes, again, it's not about pure selfishness. It's just out of pure desperation. And so, verse 6, God turns the table, and he begins to answer that very question. 58, verse 6, is not this the kind of fast I have chosen? If you want to know what I want, says God, if you want, to, if you want your activity to count for something, then here's what he says. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke. There's a lot there. But here's, here's as, we, as we work through the, the, the remainder of these verses, here's how I want you to understand and see this. That this is not so much about what God wants from us more than what God wants for us. Again, that's the, the premise of the gospel. And what God wants for us includes bringing our hearts in alignment with his, which means that a significant part of our wholeness that God wants for us is for us to be for others. Pin drop. Man. That, that what God wants is lives that make a meaningful impact on others. And so, During the remainder of our time, what I want to do here is, in the remainder of these verses, I want to point out three ways that I think God clearly defines what a life of meaningful impact looks like. Moving us away from the meaninglessness of religious activity to a life of true meaning. And the first point is this, it's right from verse 6. Meaningful impact is self-denial for the sake of others. Is self-denial for the sake of others. In other words, here's what God's saying. If you're going to give something up, Give up your fighting with others and start fighting for others. If you're going to give something up, then stop making things hard on other people and start lightening the burdens and the loads of other people. Give up self-seeking and fix your eyes on what God sees. Loosen the chains of injustice. Untie cords that tie people down. Be about the work of setting people free from oppression and exploitation. If you're going to deny yourself, make it count for the things that God wants. That's what God's saying. I don't know of another place in Scripture, in, in just a succinct way that captures the answer to this question, God, what do you want from me, than Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And some of you probably have this verse memorized, but here's what it says. Now, this is actually from the, the ESV. I think it might say NIV on the screen. This is from the ESV. This is what, this is what Micah chapter 6, verse 8 says. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That's what God wants. 
to do justice, to set things right for others, just as God, who has justified us by faith, has set things right for us by giving us right standing with him. But notice what it says, doing justice. It doesn't say think about justice. It doesn't say aspire to justice. It says do justice. And doing justice implies action. You see, sometimes the greatest wrongs are not necessarily the things that we do. It's the things that we don't do. That can be wrong. So God says do justice, love kindness, because when we love kindness, we become like God. You see, you, you become like the things that you love. And God is kind. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, says Romans chapter 2, verse 4. And that God, by his grace, has given us what we do not deserve. And so we're called to be a people who are known for our kindness. Which is obviously how Christians are known in the world today, right? We are the most kind people, right? And I say that with a little bit of sarcasm. But, but we're called to be like God, to love kindness. Not just to do kindness, love kindness. And to walk humbly with God, which means that we yield to God leading the way, walking with God instead of expecting God to walk with us. Walk humbly with God. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. This is what God wants. But going back to Isaiah chapter 58, pick it up with verse 7, it keeps going. God says, it's not, is it not to share your food with the hungry? Think about this for just a second. Although man shall not live by bread alone, man lives by bread at the very least, right? And for many of us, we can choose to deny ourselves of food, but the hungry don't always get that choice, right? And so God's saying, share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe them and, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Like, don't deny humanity in others. If you'll do these things, then here's what verse 8 says, then your light, your light, what Jesus calls us to be, light to the world, then your light will shine forth or break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before, and, and the, before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard which is just another way of saying that, that God will protect you when and where you're most vulnerable. That then you will call on the Lord and the Lord will answer and you will cry for help and, and he will say, here am I. Want to know how to find God? Find it in denying ourselves for the sake of others and not simply for ourselves. Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of finger, and malicious talk, which again, like the, the whole idea of the yoke of oppression is hypocrisy. Like we're about God who sets us free and yet we're bearing weight on, on other people and on each other. Pointing the finger is again drawing attention to others' faults instead of our own, right? And malicious talk has to do with sinning by our words. Like if you'll, if you'll do away with these things, verse 10, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like a noonday Here, here's the second way that i think this passage defines meaningful impact for us and it says meaningful impact is spending ourselves for the sake of others 
Meaningful impact is self-denial for the sake of others. It is spending ourselves for the sake of others, and especially for the poor and needy, the marginalized and vulnerable, the hungry and the homeless. Verse 10, this phrase, spend yourselves, can also be translated in the Hebrew to to move or to give oneself to a a long-term, deep-hearted commitment. Like we're, We're in the context of this verse, Spending ourselves implies more than giving our money and material goods to the poor and the needy. It's giving ourselves. It is offering ourselves. You've heard this probably said more times than you can count that the most valuable resource that you have to give is yourself and your time, right? Not just your material possessions. In order to bring relief and hope to others with a heart that is sensitive and broken for the affliction of others. And so all of this begs the question, then, what does that actually look like for us? Like, what does it mean for us to have a meaningful impact? What does it mean for us to actually live out and be obedient to these verses? And I think part of the answer to that question is to keep our focus in alignment with the things that God sees. So let me give you a couple examples of what I mean. Have some help from some folks in our church family this week. And I want to give you just a snapshot Okay, a snapshot of where we are. Now, listen, this is the new guy telling you about Lincoln. Okay, so there's just some some real irony here. Okay, but but let me tell you, and I'm learning this. Some of you already know this, but some of you don't. And so so here's here's a snapshot of our community where, where God has placed us to make a meaningful impact among our neighbors. Most of you know the population of Lincoln is 295,000 ish people. Uh, in, including the population of Lincoln. I think Lancaster County is like 325,000 people. Over the last 10 years, Lincoln has continued to grow to be more and more diverse. We're 25, there's been a 25% increase in people of color, which means that 20% of our population is minority. 10% of that population was born outside of the U.S. And Lincoln, I mean, if you know this, is home to 30,000 refugees and immigrants from 150 different countries. And this, you know, partners that we have, Juniper uh, Refuge, uh, uh, Lutheran Family Services, things of that nature are uh, key and essential in, in, in trying to help people move from strangers to neighbors in a, in a new community. A lot of us can't even imagine. Can you imagine picking up your life and moving somewhere where you don't even speak the language? There's nothing that you can identify with somebody. And you move into a place and you are a stranger. And God says, no, love your neighbors. We want to love them into being our neighbors. 30,000 of them. Lincoln ranks fifth in the U.S. in refugee resettlement per capita. Actually, in 2016, Lincoln ranked first in the U.S. in refugee resettlement per capita. 30% of total households live below or near uh, the federal poverty line. Federal poverty line is somewhere around 15,000, and it goes up 5,000-ish um, for every person in the household. One in five children uh, under the age of 18 or 18 or younger are affected by uh, poverty or living at or near poverty. There's three census tracts in Lincoln. Many of you probably can identify exactly where some of these are. Three census tracts in Lincoln where there is extreme poverty. We're 51 to 58% of people living in that particular uh, uh, census tract suffer from extreme poverty, well below $15,000 a year per person. 47% of children in Lincoln Public Schools receive free or reduced lunches. 
northwest Lincoln, and this is like north and, and, and really a little, little sliver of, of northeast Lincoln, um, is most diverse and ethnically uh, and culturally. Actually, as, as the, the um, diversity ethnically and culturally to, to the entire city. But in those particular areas, there is a lower life expectancy, higher poverty, poor health. If you know anything about food deserts, food deserts are essentially uh, places where you got 500 or more people uh, living in a low-income area with limited access to healthy foods, like a grocery store, things of that nature. There, there's four food deserts in Lincoln, and, and three are located in the city in that northwest uh, corner of Lincoln. 15% of children in Lancaster County are food insecure. According to the point-in-time national um, uh, campaign of counting homeless and un- unsheltered people uh, that happens every January. Uh, there are 429 people that were counted this year. There's oftentimes many more than that that are homeless in Lincoln. 20% of those are fleeing domestic violence. 25% are under the age of 18. As the mental health crisis continues to grow, as mental health needs continue to uh, expand, suicide is the eighth leading cause of death in Lancaster County. This number is probably a little bit uh, dated, maybe, maybe no more than a year. And this is from a uh, collection from you know, Cedars Youth Services, Christian Heritage, uh, uh, Lutheran Family Services. 6,231 children in Nebraska are in foster care. 913 are awaiting adoptive families. 4,000 are waiting for out-of-home placement due to abuse and neglect. And 200 people uh, that we know of are caught in human trafficking in Lincoln. This is just the tip of the iceberg, folks. Like I, we, we could keep going, and, and again, while some of these numbers might not be exact, that they're probably not far off. And so what's the point of sharing this data with you? The, the founder of World Vision and Samaritan's Purse, a guy named Bob Pierce, uh, was often quoted as saying, God, break our hearts for the things that break yours. And there's little question that when you look through those numbers, it just gives you a glimpse of the things that break God's heart among our proximate neighbors. But, but we also need to be aware of this, that while it's certainly right for us to ask God to break our hearts for what breaks his heart, our hearts could never bear all that breaks God's heart. Never could. See, while the things on this list should break all of our hearts, listen, some of our hearts are particularly pierced by some of the needs that we see here. And that might be an indication of where God may be calling you to spend yourself if you're not already. And so we, we want to help you connect with some of these opportunities. We're going to talk more about that this, this coming Wednesday evening. At the same time, when we put our resources together, think about this. With one heart, we are a far greater representation of God's heart to this community than we ever could be alone. I've, I've, had, I've talked to people, you know, over the years that, that they're really passionate about something. And, you know, they can't understand why somebody else isn't passionate about that thing that they're passionate about. And it's almost like, shame on you. But no, listen, if your heart can't break for all the things that God's heart breaks for, your heart is breaking for some of the things that God's heart breaks for, Right? And when you take all of the things that our hearts break for and you put it into a community, we are a far greater reflection of God's heart together than we ever would be apart. Does that make sense? If, if not, go back and listen to it again and maybe, maybe it'll make sense. But meaningful impact is spending ourselves both individually and collectively for the sake of others. And so let's finish this out. Verse 11. 
The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. In other words, if you spend yourself in these ways for, for the needs of others, there's abundance that you and I will experience. Again, it's not about us, but we experience abundance in our lives. We become well-watered gardens, satisfying us in the midst of even sun-scorched places. For some of you, that's the word you need today. Verse 11. Let's look at verse 12. Your, your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls and restorer of streets with dwellings. Spending ourselves building things that are eternal and that will last. Like, wouldn't that be awesome if people, you know, when they th- thought about New Cove or th- think about New Cove, oh yeah, that's the folks, they're, they're repairers of the broken walls. They're the restorer of streets with dwellings. So here's the last thing I want us to see in this passage. That meaningful impact brings satisfaction to our souls. Meaningful impact brings satisfaction to our souls. Meaningful impact is self-denial for the sake of others. Meaningful impact is essentially, again, spending ourselves for the sake of others. And by doing those things, it brings satisfaction to our souls. Like it's more than just satisfaction of knowing that our lives are counting for something more than ourselves. It's a satisfaction of knowing that our lives, our faith is in alignment with the heart of God. Where instead of doing things to please our own desires, we're doing things for God's pleasure, spending our things, ourselves on things that he desires. Verse 13, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight, the Lord's uh, holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words. In other words, what that's saying, what that's saying here is that if you refrain from doing as you please, if you will intentionally and regularly take time to truly delight in the Lord, which is why God gave his people the Sabbath to begin with. It was a reminder that everything we have comes from the Lord's hand. It was a reminder that it is God that makes the world go around, not us. It was a reminder that, hey, listen, I am willing to lose a a day of income perhaps in order to gain perspective with God. That was what Sabbath was intended for. It It was a day that was intended for the people to work from rest, not to rest. We'll talk more about that as we, we get into this year. so important. Like, if you'll stop treating the Sabbath day like that, if you'll delight yourself in the Lord and find satisfaction in him as he shapes your heart and gives us the desire of our hearts, like, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 34. If we'll posture ourselves in these ways, look at what God promises in verse 14. Then you will find your joy in the Lord. Satisfaction. You'll find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride and triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father, Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So as we prepare ourselves this morning to take delight in the Lord and his gospel from where our joy comes from uh, through communion, I want to invite you as as the worship team leads us, uh, for some of you, it's being able to join in singing for others of us. Maybe it's just an opportunity and a time for you to reflect on what God might be saying to you this morning through his word. What does it look like for you to make this type of meaningful impact? Where God may be calling you to deny yourself, to spend yourself for the sake of others. 
And for some of us, like, where do we need to rediscover? And maybe for some, even discover for the first time the satisfaction of resting. Resting in the finished work of Jesus. Resting in it. A satisfaction that brings meaning to what would otherwise be meaningless in our lives. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your grace and your goodness. That so often gains our attention, God, to to turn us back, God, from our waywardness that oftentimes is focused inward when, God, you have called us to be a people who are focused outward on the mission. As we continue to keep you at the center of all we do, God, help us to continue to embody your heart to this community, God, to this city. God, where where some of us this morning, God, have, have been spending so much time God, working for satisfaction and gain and fulfillment within ourselves. God, remind us of of the truth of your word that it is not those who seek to save their lives that will gain their lives. It is those who seek to, those who are willing to lose their lives that actually gain them. It's, It's those who are willing to empty themselves for the kingdom that are the ones who actually live full. Let that that truth resonate deeply in our hearts this morning, Father. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know the the joy of the Lord through the salvation that you have provided through your one and only son, Jesus. God, would you draw hearts to yourself this morning with arms wide open saying, come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden and burdened. I will give you rest. Thank you for your gracious invitation. Thank you for your gospel that has not only saved and rescued us and justified us and giving us right standing, God, uh, making us right before you, but, but thank you so much for a gospel that compels us to go and to proclaim you and to be light for you in this community and abroad. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.